Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 52. Last week, I wrapped up with Alexander defeating the Persians and essentially fully controlling what had formerly been known as the Persian Empire. I say essentially because there were a few small pockets of Persian resistance. Included in this was his rule over Egypt, with him winning control over that country in 332 BC. In the future, I plan on a more thorough and deeper dive into Philip, Alexander, and Persia, but for now we need to circle back and wrap up Egypt. And just in case you missed it a second ago, this is the 52nd episode of the third chapter. And since this is a weekly podcast, and the third chapter focuses on the history that corresponds with the book of Exodus, that means I have been focused on that book, and primarily the history of the Egyptians, for a year. All of this is assuming you're listening in real time, and not binging at some later date. I did warn you that it would take a while, but this is even exceeding my expectations, and it reinforces the need to press the accelerator. We're almost there, though, as I plan on covering the remaining three or so centuries and finish around when BC changes to AD, as best as I can find a stopping point. It was at that time that Joseph, Mary, and the infant Jesus traveled to exile in the North African nation, escaping Herod. For now, we're at the point where Alexander had just cemented his control over the formerly great country and installed a native-born satrap. He also commissioned the construction of the great coastal city that would bear his name, Alexandria. And with all that background and a bit of explanation done, let's get started. Shortly after he won Egypt, Alexander departed to continue to chase after Darius, and life in Egypt carried on. The Nile flooded, the crops were planted, then harvested, and the taxes were paid. Just now they were routed towards the Greeks. And for nine years, while Alexander continued his conquest as far east as India, life continued this way in Egypt and throughout much of the immense Greek empire. Then, in June of 323 BC, Alexander died in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar II in Babylon when he was only 32 years old and it's worth a bit of a rabbit hole dive, as his death would lead to succession problems. Now, there are two different accounts of Alexander's death, and the details of his death in each are slightly different. Plutarch, a 1st century AD Greek-Roman historian, wrote that about two weeks before his death, Alexander entertained the Greek admiral Nearchus, and spent that night and the next day imbibing with Medius of Larissa, He then developed a fever, which worsened to the point that he was unable to speak. Remember that tidbit. It becomes important later. His many soldiers were growing increasingly concerned about his health, and were granted the privilege to file past him as he silently waved at them. A slightly odd story. Only slightly. The other version, this one recorded by Diodorus, was that Alexander was immobilized by pain after downing a large bowl of unmixed wine. All of this while celebrating Heracles, the legendary Greek strongman, and also allegedly Alexander's ancestor. 
This was followed by 11 days of weakness, but there was no fever, although he did die in severe pain. And then, we need to look at his death through the lens of their culture, which in this regard wasn't terribly dissimilar from the Persians, in that they tended to kill each other. And that's just a long-winded way of saying he may have been assassinated with poison by one of his own. Both Diodorus and Plutarch, along with others, all recorded the theory that Alexander was poisoned, but to be clear, Plutarch dismissed it as an unsubstantiated rumor. Diodorus gave it just a bit more credence, but only a little bit. Justin, a 2nd century Roman historian, stated that Alexander was certainly the victim of a poisoning conspiracy. But there's something else, and that's that it took between 11 and 14 days for him to die. In that time and place, there were probably no poisons available that took that long to have a deadly effect. There have been a few pointed out since then that could have done it, but still probably not very likely. But there are also possible natural causes, diseases such as malaria and typhoid. Also, it could have been pyogenic, meaning infectious, spondylitis, which is an inflammation of the vertebrae, or even meningitis. And based on his symptoms, it could have also been acute pancreatitis, or even West Nile virus. His health may have been in a general decline after years of heavy drinking, severe wounds, and all of that time on the road. Regardless of the reason, one thing is for sure. He was dead, and he had no real heir. And that was a big, big problem. But first his funeral. As you would likely suspect, when the news of his death arrived back in Greece, most did not believe it, or at least accept it. After all, denial is the first stage in grief. Alexander's body was placed in a gold sarcophagus that was filled with honey, which in turn was placed in a gold casket. And this is the first instance of a honey burial I ran across, and it therefore intrigued me just a bit. As it turned out, the Assyrians had begun the practice about 100 years earlier, so Alexander and his contemporaries could have run across it. But it may have been known to the Egyptians, and apparently the honey would have done a good job of preserving his body for the return trip to Macedon. But then again, it could be mere legend. While Alexander's funeral procession was processing to Macedon, Ptolemy, whom I'll get to in a minute, seized the body and took it temporarily to Memphis, so Alexander did go back to Egypt, albeit in a slightly less animated state. The next ruler of Egypt, Ptolemy II Philadelphus, moved the sarcophagus to Alexandria, where it remained until at least late antiquity. Then, Ptolemy IX, Lathyrus, one of the final Ptolemies, removed his body from the gold sarcophagus and placed him in a glass one. He then melted the gold and turned it into coinage. Back in Greece, a recently discovered enormous tomb in northern Greece located at Amphipolis, and dating to the era, may have been his intended resting place. But he never made it there, as the tomb was empty when it was found. He was entombed in Alexandria, though. 
it's told that Pompey, Julius Caesar, and even Augustus all visited the tomb in Alexandria. Augustus, it's alleged, accidentally knocked off Alexander's nose. So much for the honey. Later, Caligula was rumored to have taken Alexander's breastplate from the tomb for his own use. Then, sometime around 200 AD, so roughly 500 years after his death, Emperor Septimius Severus closed Alexander's tomb to the public. But VIPs get to do what VIPs get to do. Severus and his son, Caracalla, both visited the tomb during their reigns. But then, the tomb was lost to history and still hasn't been found. Back to the empire in the late 4th century. So, when he died, he had no established heir. To be clear, he had been married three times and had two sons, Alexander IV of Macedon by his wife Roxanne, and possibly Heracles of Macedon from his mistress Barsine. But Alexander IV, who was born after his father's death, so even if he were legitimate, he was many, many years away from being capable of exercising rule. But the bigger issue was neither were designated as the heir. And in that society, rule did not pass automatically from father to son, but instead to the ruler's designated heir. According to Diodorus, Alexander's confidants asked him, while he was on what would become his deathbed, who he would designate as an heir. His reply was possibly a phrase that translates to, to the strongest. But in his weakened state, he may have mumbled a bit and instead said, to Craterus. Craterus was the general leading his Macedonian troops home and newly entrusted with the regency of Macedon. You have to recognize that in English, these two phrases are not at all similar, but in Greek, they are very close. Now, both Arian, a 1st century AD Greek historian, and Plutarch wrote that Alexander was incapable of talking by this time, so the story may have been a bit apocryphal. The other three historians who wrote extensively on the subject, Diodorus, Curtius, and Justin, told a more believable tale, and that was that Alexander passed his signet ring to Perdiccas, a bodyguard and leader of the cavalry. This was allegedly done in front of witnesses. By doing so, Alexander would have made his intents on an heir known. More on this in a minute. First, we need to know what was in Alexander's will, as it should have set the stage for the future of the empire. Should have. Diodorus wrote that Alexander gave detailed written instructions to Craterus well before his death, and since his death was of a relatively quick nature, it's a safe assumption that this was also before he fell ill. Craterus, being a loyal soldier, began to carry out Alexander's commands, but his successors chose not to continue with the great leader's wishes, and, to their credit, or at least in their defense, Many of these were just too impractical, and the world was changing, especially without a great conqueror. Alexander's will made clear his desire for military expansion into the southern and western Mediterranean, 
including the Arabian Peninsula and the entirety of the land surrounding the Mediterranean. Of course, that's what he wanted. He also wanted many monuments, no surprise there. In fact, he wanted a monument for his father that rivaled the ancient Egyptian pyramids. It's safe to say that never happened. He also directed the circumnavigation of the African continent. I think we've heard that one before. And this request may indicate that he, at least, didn't think it had ever been done. Then something a little different. He requested a policy that promoted the intermixing of Eastern and Western populations. Specifically, he wanted to build cities that would transplant populations from Asia to Europe, as well as in the opposite direction, in order to foster common unity and friendship by means of intermarriage and family ties. And that's the first mention I could find of an intentional intermingling of disparate peoples. And there was some movement towards this dream, and it actually began while he was still alive. It would become known modernly as Hellenization, just in case you ever run across that word. Great cities such as Alexandria, the one in Egypt, there were many others, along with Antioch and Seleucia in Iraq, would become the home to many Greek expats. Alexander would purposely integrate Greek elements into foreign cultures, creating a hybrid culture. This was most obvious in Egypt and Persia. And keep in mind that this is also how Greek came to be spoken in the Levant. Remember that the New Testament was originally written in Greek. Koine, which simply means common Greek, spread throughout the Hellenistic world, becoming the common language of Hellenistic lands. But the influence wasn't just limited to the Middle East, North Africa, and Southern Europe. There even arose Greek kingdoms in what is today Afghanistan, Pakistan, and India. Some of the kingdoms would last into the turn of BC to AD. This was so pervasive that there was even a hybridization between Greek culture and early Buddhism. But I'm way off on a tangent and need to circle back. History would have different plans for Alexander's empire. With his death, many of the Greeks who had taken the challenge and moved out from the homeland to the far-flung reaches of the empire decided to head home. Politically, Perdiccas initially did not claim his ruling power, despite Alexander's apparent intentions. He instead implied that Roxanne's yet-to-be-born baby would be king, if this baby happened to be born male. And if he were a boy, he would rule with Perdiccas, Craterus, Leonatus, and Antipater acting as regents. But of course, not everyone with an eye on the throne was happy with this pronouncement. Meleager, the general in charge of Alexander's infantry, rebuffed the proposed arrangement. He was potentially upset because he wasn't part of the discussions. Meleager, and presumably the troops under his command, supported the ascension of Alexander's half-brother, Philip Eridaeus. Sometime during the debate over who would be the next king, Perdiccas grew tired of Meleager's opinion and had him killed, along with about 300 of his troops, accusing them all of mutiny. That's certainly one way to get your way. 
For what it's worth, before Alexander was elevated to king, he was worried the same half-brother would be named the heir. What I haven't yet mentioned, and will cover in a later episode, is that Alexander was only half-Macedonian. Since his mother was from the Greek city-state of Epirus, Philip Eridaeus was fully Macedonian and therefore more likely to be named heir, but he faced a large hurdle, which I'll get to after this succession crisis, a crisis that would have a bearing on the entire kingdom, a kingdom that included Egypt, the Hebrew people, and many others. So how do you solve this problem and bring the two sides together? Your answer may be different, but in their case, they promoted both sons to king. After Alexander IV was born, and he turned out to be a boy, he was made joint king with his half-uncle, who would become known as Philip III. But neither would really rule, aka there were kings in title only. And of course, someone would need to take charge, but who? The lust for power among the various military leaders was rearing its head, taking the form of dissension and explicit rivalry. As soon as he was the apparent heir, having been given the signet reign, Peridacus began assigning generals and other leaders as satraps of the various territories, and having allies in these positions would help him control the throne. But, as was far too common in that era, rivals knew how to loosen his grip in a very permanent fashion. In 321 BC, so roughly two years after Alexander's death, Perdiccas was assassinated. With Perdiccas's death, what little unity had been in the kingdom was gone. What ensued was a civil war that would last for the better part of 40 years, so over three times longer than Alexander reigned. Eventually, what had been one kingdom under one great ruler would be divided into four separate territories, Ptolemaic Egypt, Seleucid Mesopotamia in Central Asia, Attalid Anatolia, and Antigonid Macedon. But I'm a little ahead of myself. First, we need to learn what became of the co-kings, Alexander IV and Philip III. First to Philip III. He was Alexander's older half-brother, with Philip II being the father to both. While he was still a child, perhaps an adolescent, it became obvious that he had some sort of learning difficulty. There is the theory that he was brain damaged as a result of a failed assassination attempt, perhaps via poisoning. This theory is that Alexander's mother tried to kill him to assure her son would become the king. But there's no proof of any of the parts of this story. Alexander apparently liked his older half-brother, even taking him on military campaigns. But this may have been to assure he wasn't at home waiting to be installed on the throne either. No matter, with Alexander's death, he would become the co-king, but have no real power. The true power remained with the generals, more specifically with Perdacus. But there was more, and Philip III took a new wife who had considerable sway over his opinion. Perdacus would die shortly afterwards. But Perdacus had named his lieutenant as successor and regent to the disabled king, 
Perdakis's son was upset that he wasn't the heir regent apparent, and another civil war ensued. A war so dramatic that Alexander's mother would take the battlefield leading a part of the army. Long story short, Philip III would end up executed and his controlling wife committed suicide, perhaps forced to do so. At the time, Alexander IV was still alive, so he would become the sole ruler with Alexander the Great's mother, Olympias, acting as his regent. But the next year, so 316 BC, Cassander, another potential Macedonian ruler, would return to Macedon. When he did, he conquered his homeland and had the regent Olympias executed. Alexander IV, along with his mother, were taken prisoner. There's nothing like a civil war. And in this case, the rival satraps slash generals, namely Cassander, Antigenus, Ptolemy, and Lysimachus, settled their differences and made peace. Part of the peace deal was that when Alexander IV came of age, he would become the undisputed king, succeeding Cassander as the ruler supreme. By this time, number four was almost 14, and this marked a significant transition to the point where many thought he should go ahead and rule solely. Cassander would have none of that, still lusting for power. So, what's a dictator to do? Easy. He had Alexander, along with the child king's mother, poisoned. You really should have seen that one coming. Which would normally make a good stopping point, but I have a few minutes to spare, giving me enough time to cover the satrap of Egypt at the time, Ptolemy. Ptolemy, like Alexander, was born and raised in Macedon, and there's even the theory that his father may have been Philip II, so Ptolemy may have been another of Alexander's half-brothers. And that may be the reason that he is considered one of Alexander's most trusted advisors, as well as a military general. He also chronicled many of the events of the campaigns. His writings would serve as source material for so many of the historical accounts that followed. With the defeat of the Persians in Egypt, Ptolemy would depart Egypt with Alexander and continue fighting, as far away as what is today Afghanistan. With Alexander's death, the field generals divided up the territory, and Ptolemy became the satrap of Egypt. So much for the Egyptians' short-lived self-rule. One of his first moves was to capture the eastern region of Libya, and it was Ptolemy that would hijack Alexander's body when it was being returned to Greece and have it brought to Memphis instead. In 321 BC, a rival Greek general, while Greece was fully engulfed in the civil war, attempted to invade Egypt, and that didn't go well for him. After losing about 2,000 of his troops in battle, he was murdered by his own men. Ptolemy seized the opportunity and brought supplies to what remained of this rival army, and this won the remaining troops over to Ptolemy. Ptolemy would use this and similar opportunities that presented themselves during the continuing Greek civil wars to grow his territory from Egypt as far north and east as Judea and Syria, meaning that during this time, in the early 4th century BC, Ptolemy ruled over many of the Hebrews. 
the Greek Civil Wars continued until the brokered peace that left the previously mentioned 13-year-old Alexander No. 4 as boy king. But then the king was murdered and the Greek kingdom essentially split. And this left Ptolemy to his own devices, as the supreme ruler of Egypt and surrounding territories. But Ptolemy was not satisfied. In 309 BC, he personally commanded a fleet that took the Anatolian coastal towns of Lycia and Caria. The next year, he crossed into Greece, where he conquered Corinth, Sicyon, and Megara. But this was not to last, as two years later, he would lose all of this territory, along with Cyprus, to the Greek satrap Demetrius. That same year, another satrap, Antigonus, would get greedy and invade Egypt. Ptolemy would drive the rival out. After this, he kept his territorial aspirations confined to the area around Egypt. He would, though, continue to win and lose territory in Syria, to the point that control over the region, which included Syria and Judea, would alternate between the Seleucid and the Ptolemaic dynasties. Some military victories here, with losses there all in the few centuries leading up to the birth of Christ. Domestically, he would establish the Library Alexandria, a library so significant I'll cover it at the beginning of the next episode. He was also the sponsor of the mathematician Euclid, generally regarded as the founder of the study of geometry. He too will get some time in the next episode. Ptolemy would die in 282 BC, when he was probably 84 years old, quite a life for a Greek who had seen so much. He was succeeded by his son, Ptolemy II Philadelphus, who had previously served as his co-regent. And that is a good stopping point. Join me next week when I'll continue with the Egyptian Ptolemies, as well as the Library of Alexandria in Euclid. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.